messages, rejection, revilement, or rejected, reviled, and resurrected. Without question, Isaiah 53 from the Old Testament is a prophecy that is speaking directly about the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus some 700 years later. And it's amazing to me that God's people, the, the, the people of Israel, had been earnestly praying for their Messiah to come for hundreds of years. And yet when their, one of their most uh, admired prophets, a man by the name Isaiah, writes the words of what we know today to be Isaiah chapter number 53, the Jewish people didn't see that he was talking about the coming of their Messiah. There is a, there was a document called the Jewish Targum uh, that interprets this portion of Isaiah's prophecy as referring to the Messiah. The Targum is an ancient uh, Aramaic paraphrase or interpretation of of the original Hebrew Bible. And the reason that's important is because the Targum was utilized in the first century after Jesus' passing. And, and the reason it was utilized is because the Hebrew language was dying. The people of Jesus' day spoke a, what I would call a dialect of Hebrew called Aramaic. And so the Targum was translated into Aramaic so the people of that day could better understand what the word was saying. Every detail of the prophet's words here in Isaiah 53 corresponds so closely to the person and the work of, of the Lord Jesus that, that no one who thinks rationally could reason that it's talking about anyone else other than Jesus himself. As I said, it was written over 700 years before Jesus' death on the cross. But its predictions are so specific that no mere man could have possibly written them or fulfilled them. And, and that leads me to say this, this 53rd chapter of Isaiah is an unde undebatable proof of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in bringing the Word of God to its writers. This is the divine Word of Almighty God. And he speaks to Isaiah this clear teaching uh, that deliverance for all people comes through the substitutionary suffering of Jesus the Messiah. Jesus did not suffer because people are sinners. Jesus suffered in the place of sinful people. The New Testament teaches us, one of the most famous passages from the book of Romans, the wages of sin is death. Sin has to be punished by death. Not, you see, friends, not only do we serve a loving God, but we serve a just God. And a just God demands justice for sin that's been committed. And so, the justice for sinfulness is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
I want us to notice in this first message of this series the terms of suffering that are packed together in these verses. Let's look beginning with verse number 4. I'll come back and address each of these verses more in more detail in a moment, but let's start reading with verse number 4. And again, keep in mind, this is Isaiah prophesying about the Lord Jesus. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment and who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man at his death. Although he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. What words? Just look real quickly at the words that depict pain and suffering in that short passage that I just read. The words sicknesses, pain, stricken, struck down, afflicted, pierced, crushed, punished, wounded. Hearing words like that, is it any wonder that Jesus himself prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane that that cup of suffering be taken from him? Verse 4, the passage states that the true reason for Jesus' suffering, and this is the amplified version of what we just read, surely he has borne borne our griefs, sicknesses, weaknesses, and distresses, and carried our sorrows and pains of punishment, yet we ignorantly considered him stricken, smitten and afflicted by God as if with leprosy. Notice the contrast, friends, between two words. The words we and our. It says that although we did not recognize it at first, the sufferings of Jesus were not his own fault as we thought, but were in fact the result of our sins. Resulted, resulting in our healing. That's very important. Jesus is, is here characterized by griefs and sorrows, but these were not his own griefs and sorrows. It was our griefs and sorrows that he suffered and died for. This is the prophet identifying himself with the people and speaking for the people of a, as a whole. But everyone who recognizes that their sin caused Jesus to suffer has to include themselves in that all-inclusive word, we. It wasn't just the people of Jesus' day. It wasn't just the people that came before Isaiah wrote these words. It was, it was us. We were all responsible for Jesus' suffering. 
Every person who has ever lived comes under that category of we. And the atoning death of Christ is a truth that's so profound that even the most adept Bible scholars can't can't fully plumb its depths. I mean, think about it, friends. Jesus, the Son of God, died to take upon himself the penalty for your sins and mine. Various theories have been advanced to, to explain what happened, but Scripture teaches that the idea of substitution, that word, lies closest to the heart of this great mystery. Jesus, an innocent substitute took upon himself the sins of humanity. Sinless and perfect, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Perhaps you've heard of Cliff Barrows. Cliff Barrows was the great worship leader for many years with the Billy Graham crusade. And Cliff Barrows tells a story of the time when his two young children had done something wrong. Now, they had been gently warned not to do this something, whatever it was. But not only did they do it, but they repeated it after the first time that they'd done it. They needed to be disciplined for their disobedience. But Cliff Barrows had a very tender heart, and he was pained at the thought of having to punish people, that children that he loved. And so he called his children, whose names were Bobby and Betty, into his room, and there he removed his belt, bared his own back, and knelt down by his bed and told each of his children to lash him with the belt ten times. He said they began to cry. But I kept telling them that the penalty had to be paid. The children began to sob as they obediently lashed their father's back. After they were through, Cliff hugged and kissed them and they prayed together. And he said later, it hurt. But I never had to spank them again. (laughs) When I read that story, I thought, boy, I wish my dad would have heard that story. But don't miss the point of the story. Every one of us are haunted by some memory of some cowardly, selfish, or shameful act that we've committed in our lives. And Jesus took our lashes upon himself. And as a result, he now asks us to Accept the forgiveness that he's provided for us through his death on the cross, through that substitutionary work, and and to devote the rest of our lives to him. He wants us to know, friends, just as Cliff Barrow wanted his children to know, children to know, how very much God loves us. He loves us so much that he would send his only begotten son so that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God the judge declared us guilty, but then paid our penalty. 
Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter number 2, verse number 24, he himself, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live in righteousness by his wounding, or some translations say by his stripes, you have been healed. Now let me give you a little bit of context about this whole idea of substitutionary work that Jesus gave to us on the cross. Back in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, chapter number 16, there is an extended passage of Scripture that begins with verse 10 and ends with verse number 21. I'm not going to read it for you. You'll be able to do that on your own. But this passage speaks of this idea of carrying our sins and, and sending our sins away. Uh, it, it sets the stage, as I said, for the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus. But in Leviticus 16, they, they are still under the Old Testament uh, practice of using the, the sacrificial animal. And, and there in, in Leviticus 16, we see the sacrificial animal that is a goat. It's even given the title Azazel. And it, that goat carries the wrongdoings of the people into a desolate land so that the people don't have to carry their sin anymore. Now understand that this is a practice that had to be done every year on the Day of Atonement. And so every year the people would be reminded once again of the sins that they, that they had brought into their lives. But as a symbol, they would take this goat... And they would take another goat that would be sacrificed. And, and after the, blood, the goat was sacrificed, they would take the blood of that goat. And they would place it on this Azazel goat that would been, then be led out into the wilderness. And symbolically carry with it the sins of the people. Uh, he, the animal isn't banished into this desolate land merely because the people had sinned. He was banished in place of the people being banished. He must do what for the people they could not do. Grasp this, this, this bearing of weakness and illness that made us the people of Jesus' day who thought he was going to become their earthly king. When they saw Jesus, who just a week earlier that they had hailed as the, the coming king of the Jews... Uh, riding into Jerusalem on the back of a colt. And one week later, they see him with a crown of thorns on his head. And as Isaiah says in chapter number 15, a body that barely resembled that of a man due to the severe beating that he had taken upon himself. The people of that day thought, boy, this guy must have done something terrible for God to do this to him. They didn't even realize that he was doing this on their behalf. He's going to become their substitute. And the very things that made him made them think that he must be of very little importance to God or else he wouldn't have to be going through this are the things for which we ought to honor him because we now know, having the luxury of looking back, that Jesus was doing those things for us. And he did it willingly. You see, here's the thing, friends. When we hurt, we hurt others. But when God hurt, he healed others. 
That's the work of the substitute. Then you come to this word stricken. It describes leprosy or any illness or misfortune that suddenly occurs. The people had seen Jesus apparently afflicted with some fearful disease because God is punishing him on this cross, and they wondered to themselves what terrible things Jesus must have done to deserve this. Have you ever heard the saying, you can't see the forest for the trees? This is where it becomes very true. They couldn't see their own sinfulness because they wanted to attach it to Jesus and his sinfulness. Well, he had no sin. And yet here he is hanging on a cross for the sins that they had committed. Washington, D.C., there is a, and some of you have seen it, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall, dedicated in 1982. And in the first 15 years, 54,000 items were left at that wall in memory of loved ones who passed during that horrible war. Told that it still takes almost an hour every evening and much longer on holidays like Memorial Day to, to collect all the mementos that have been left at the foot of that wall a teddy bear, a photo uh, of, of a soldier's grandchild, a, a letter from a daughter who never knew her dad. And they take those items, I'm told, and every one of them is labeled and taken to a warehouse, but no one knows quite how to deal with all of them. No one ever expected this to happen, one park ranger said. It's so personal, it catches me by surprise every time I go to the wall to pick them up. Loss comes to everyone. Loss is no respecter of persons. And we often carry this thing called grief for many years. We struggle with emotions. Is there a place where we can leave our sorrows and find healing for the wounds that life has brought to us? It's very reminiscent of what Jesus was doing. Jesus himself bore our grief and our sorrows and when we, see, when we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior from sin, we also come to know him as the one who can lift sadness from our shoulders. We bring our grief to the man of sorrows. And there we find help, we find healing, we find closure for even the deepest pain of our hearts. As we sang earlier, trade your sorrows for the joy that Jesus can provide. And then we come to verse 5. Isaiah 53. And there we find this striking picture of both the physical and the spiritual anguish that Jesus experienced for us. I learned it this way, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes... We are healed. The biggest and most important word is the first word of that passage, the word but. It emphasizes the contrast between Jesus and us. Here we thought, and the people of Jesus' day thought that God was punishing Jesus for his own sins and his own failures, but in fact he was pierced through as a result of our rebellion. He was crushed on account of our selfishness and twistedness. 
And so the images now, now shift from, from illness to injury and they become more severe. One, one who's pierced through usually dies. The one who's crushed indicates at least the concept of being broken into pieces and in some case even pulverized. In the case of Jesus, do you know what crushed him? The weight of our sin. Our sins, which were many, crushed him. And when he became sin in our place, his heavenly father turned away from him. That crushed him. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because God could not look upon sin and Jesus became sin. And sin kills and it was our sin that killed Jesus. His wounds were from his back being laid open by a Roman flogging. That flogging was done by what was known as the cat of nine tails. And Leonard's going to show you a a video, I'm going to keep talking, but you can get the idea of the damage that a whip of this nature would cause. It was a whip that was approximately 30 inches long. At the end of that 30 inches was another set of ropes that had been unraveled into nine smaller ropes, each of which were unraveled into a rope of three strands that had knots tied in it with bits of metal and bone designed to rip from the subject the very meat from the muscles. Yes, it's graphic, I know. But we need to understand the price that Jesus paid for us. The wounding, the pain, the suffering... Jewish law in Deuteronomy chapter number 25 allowed a man to receive 40 such lashes such as this with this whip. But keep in mind, this was the ruthless Romans who were administering this beating to Jesus. And so they weren't confined by what Jewish law said. There's a tradition that said he was given 40 lashes less less one, which meant 39, but that's not in Scripture when this whip would connect with the flesh of a man, it would literally shred the, sin, uh, the, the, the skin and muscle from the body. No wonder Isaiah had said after this beating had been administered to Jesus that Jesus barely resembled a man. Again, we have to understand that the reason for this suffering of Jesus was our transgressions and the iniquities of our fallen nature. And it's far more, friends, than Jesus just having sympathy and compassion for our lost condition as a result of our sin. It's the actual bearing of the consequences. Those things were supposed to happen to us. They were punishment for our sin. But Jesus, the substitute, took that punishment upon himself. We committed the sins But the piercing and the crushing fell on him. The severity of punishment of Jesus is a measure, I believe, of how seriously God takes 
things like rebellion and crookedness. You know, we typically wish to make light of our shortcomings, to explain away our mistakes. But I'm telling you, friends, God will have none of that. Sin requires judgment. The refusal of, of human humanity to, to bow to the commandments of God. Our insistence of drawing up our own moral codes that pander to our lusts. Those aren't shortcomings. They're not mistakes. Let's call it what it is. It is sin. You know, one of the things that's happening in the church in America today is we have churches and we have pastors who no longer want to preach against sin because it makes people feel bad. And they don't want to make people feel bad because when people feel bad, they'll do one of two things. They'll either not come anymore or two, they'll continue to come, but they're not going to support the work of the ministry. So they've shied away from preaching about sin and calling it what it is. I pray to God that Trinity Faith will never be found guilty of that. Sin is sin. And God hates sin. He loves sinners, but he hates sin. In fact, he loves sinners so much that he's willing to do whatever it would take to make it possible for sinners to become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Christ has delivered us. He himself was delivered for our sins so that we might be delivered from ours. What can we do about our past? Can we cleanse the wounds? Can we destroy the infection? Well, no. You can't write new words over the old ones and hope to blot out the old ones. You can't come to wipe the slate clean because what's done is done. Someone has to take the disease of sin and give health back in its place. Someone has to bear the blows. Someone has to feel the pain in order to give the health back and the well-being. Before God could forgive, his justice had to be satisfied. He had to punish sin. And so that punishment fell upon Jesus, again, who knew no sin, to become sin. Let me just say that there are, as you well know, I'm sure, earthly consequences for our sin. And those consequences are serious and they can't be taken lightly. But friends, I'm telling you, by no means are our consequences as serious as spiritual consequences. Sin separates us from God. Sin makes it impossible for us to ever have access to God, to be restored or reconciled back to God. Jesus is that bridge between sin and the holiness of God. And he takes a hold of our sin with one hand and takes a hold of the throne of God with the other. And he brings us back to God. And there we find peace, we find satisfaction. We find newness of life. That's what the entire sacrificial system is about. And I know this isn't a pretty message that tickles your ears. But friends, 
making it possible for sinful human beings to have fellowship with God once again is the greatest message that has ever been preached. We were lost and undone. Isaiah said we are like sheep without a shepherd, wandering and turning to our own way. And back in Isaiah's day, the, the, the sacrifices of bulls and goats dealt with a temporary fix for sin, at least till next year. But it didn't deal with the eternal consequences or the effects of sin. So what did they do? Well, they dealt with it temporarily. They symbolically addressed the truth that when a soul sins, it has to suffer death. And when that bull or goat or whatever the sacrifice that was offered died, it symbolically showed that there is no forgiveness from sin apart from the shedding of blood. The writer of Hebrews reiterates that for us in Hebrews chapter 9, verse number 22, when he says, without, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness from sin. But can a sheep die for a man? Can a goat die on behalf of a woman? No. So what then did this sacrificial system provide? It eventually provided cleansing from sin by means of a substitute. Jesus was our substitute. John the Baptist spoke of this. Jesus approached him one day as John the Baptist was baptizing people in the Jordan River. And Jesus, being ready to launch out into his own earthly ministry, saw the need to fulfill all righteousness and have John baptize him. And as he approached John the Baptist, John looked up and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. A lamb can't die in place of a human. But a perfect human could. And if that human is also eternal God, then he could die not only for just one person's sin, he could die for every person's sin. Again, Hebrews chapter 9 says that Jesus entered the Holy of Holies once for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. And then in verse 14, how much more then will the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? Now for us, as well as the people of God, past, present, and future, to be enabled to be children of God, Blood atonement was necessary, and that's what Isaiah 53 is all about. Someone's aptly said these words, and I quote, It's a simple thing to say Christ died for the sins of the world. It's quite another thing to say that Christ died for my sin. I know that sometimes, friends, it's easy for us to to read the story of Jesus' crucifixion on the cross this time of year when we approach Easter. And, and to point our fingers at those who carried out the crucifixion. But did you know that it's shocking to me that we can be as indifferent as Pilate himself? We can be as scheming as Caiaphas, the high priest. We can be as calloused as were the soldiers. And as ruthless as this mob of people screaming for his execution. 
or as cowardly as his disciples were on that day when they hung him from the cross. It's easy for us to point our finger at them and say, how could they have? But it isn't just what they did to Jesus, friends. It was what they did and what we have done. We have an equal part in nailing him to the tree. It was our sin that crucified him. We joined the mockery. We have Jesus' blood on our hands. Because he took upon himself the penalty for our sins. My sin. Your sin. And Isaiah talks about this in verse number 6. He tells us the reason. He tells us the necessity of all the suffering that's previously mentioned. And he said it was because we all went astray like sheep. We turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Those three letters, that three-letter word, all. A-double-L. Every person who has ever lived or will live, all without exception. This picture Isaiah is is illustrating or painting for us here is is of the concept of of running away or alienating ourselves from God. And this sad picture of, of rebellion is painted with a picture of a wandering sheep. Now, I don't know much about sheep, but I've been told some things. I've been told that sheep are notoriously unmindful and unaware of their circumstances. Their minds are totally fixed on that next clump of grass that they happen to come up to. Not much else. And as they search for that next clump of grass, it's easy for them to begin to stray in all directions. So sheep, I'm also told, are very prone to wander off and get lost. No wonder Isaiah uses the illustration of a sheep. We too are prone to stray and get lost in life. Our selfishness, our lack of judgment, our poor decisions, our lusts, our ambitions, our temptations. I could go on and on. They've caused us each one to go our own way. How? By turning or by living our life like we desire to live it instead of how God tells us we need to live it. Like sheep, we humans don't seem to be aware of the consequences of our choices. And like them, we can't defend ourselves against the consequences of our choices. Imagine with me for a moment of of reading in the bright, clear light of God's presence, the biography that details every thought, every word, every deed that you've ever spoken or committed in your life. And those things, those words, those deeds, those thoughts have been recorded and then you have them measured against the Word of God. How's that leave you feeling? I know how it leaves me. It reminds me of how far short of the glory of God I fall in my life. How, how far short I fall of God's perfection because I've gone astray. So what did God do? To bring us back into the fold, he sent Jesus. 
He sent Jesus to bring us back. Jesus, the good shepherd, laid down his life for lost, straying, rebellious sheep. And the consequences of our choices were laid upon him. The effects of our behavior laid upon him. All so that he could make a way for us to come back to God. Who would do such a valiant thing? Who would do something that amazing? You see, God pulled aside the curtain of time to let the people of Isaiah's day look ahead to the suffering of their future Messiah. You see, they had it ingrained in their heads that when Messiah came, he was going to establish his throne upon the earth and they would no longer be subject to people like Romans or Philistines or Assyrians or any of those other people. They had this preconceived notion in their mind what Messiah was going to look like. So when Isaiah paints this picture of a Messiah who is suffering, of a Messiah who is beaten and crucified, it just goes right over their head. They can't imagine a Messiah in that way. And by and large, the people of God today still don't recognize Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah. Even though we today have the hindsight to see and know the identity of who Jesus was, still there are many people who do not recognize the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ for them on the cross. story I came across in preparing this message was the story of early settlers who were traveling together across the western part of the United States. And one day as they were traveling, they were horrified to see a raging fire fanned by strong winds coming straight toward them. The flames raced closer and closer to them. One man, to the amazement of the others with him, set fire to a large patch of grass that was downwind from where they were. And that little patch of grass began to to burn very quickly and left behind a, a charred and barren area. After he had burnt that little patch of grass, he came back to the rest of the settlers and he told them who were traveling with him to, to go move on to that place that he had already burned. And as they did, they watched the fire that was sweeping toward them reach that burned area, and then go around them on both sides. And their lives were spared. The fire of God's judgment, friends, one day is going to come to this world. And I like to think of it this way. God has provided a burned over place where we can find refuge and be spared from God's judgment. At Calvary, the fire of God's justice was met in the person of Jesus, our substitute. He bore our sins there. He fully paid the price for our transgressions. He made full satisfaction for the penalty of our sins. And we who have taken our stand by faith in that finished work of Jesus Christ were safe. We're safe. In other words, there's nothing left to burn. We're safe. Again, the words of Peter. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounding, you have been healed. Jesus died in our place to provide a place of safety. Would you bow with me, please? Lord Jesus, just looking out over this congregation this morning as these words have gone forth, I can tell this isn't one of the most enjoyable sermons they've ever heard, and rightfully so. Because Jesus, in order to set the context for what comes in the next few weeks and ultimately culminate on Easter Sunday morning, in order to get that proper context, Lord, we have to understand why it happened in the way that it did. Lord, we have to understand the great price that you paid in our place. We have to understand, God, that that list, that debt list that we have of of sins for which we were going to have to give payment for, you became the divine eraser. And he raised every debt, every transgression, and wiped the slate clean for us. Jesus, I know that many in our world today, they don't like to hear the preaching about blood and blood sacrifices and the gory part of what they call or what they have come to believe that Christianity is. But Lord, I know today that without the blood we have no hope. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or remission of our sins. And Lord, I'm thankful that no longer is blood necessary to be shed again. For you came and you were the once for all time sacrifice that provided for the forgiveness of our sins, the healing of of our woundedness. So, Lord, I make no apologies for preaching what many would consider to be a morbid, depressing sermon this morning because, God, it had to be depressing for you to see your sinless, perfect Son who had never done anything worthy of the punishment that was laid upon him not only be punished physically, but have the sin of the world laid upon him. And Lord, to think that he did that willingly and completely out of love for each one of us is overwhelming. And Lord, my prayer this morning is that if there is one in this room whose sins which were many, have not had those sins washed white by the cleansing blood of Jesus, that today would be the day. And Lord, as we give this invitation this morning, as we have given it many times at the end of countless numbers of sermons, I'm asking that your Holy Spirit the divine judge 
bring convicting power where it's needed. Convict us, Lord. Help us to understand and to see our guilt. But not just to see our guilt, but to see the hope that you have provided that will alleviate the guilt from our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Musicians, would you come, please? And Jacob, I'd like for you to, and Leonard, if you would cue verse number two of that song that we sang earlier at the cross. And with everyone's head bowed and their eyes closed, you say, Pastor Terry, I've got to agree with you. That was a depressing sermon. <laughs> yeah, it was. But you know what, friends? Without all of that stuff that depressed you this morning, you'd be hopeless. You'd have no no guarantee of life in heaven with Jesus. In fact, you'd be guaranteed of a life in eternal punishment that awaits those who don't accept the, Jesus, the, the forgiveness that Jesus offers. The flames of God's judgment can never touch me, for Jesus has borne all God's wrath on the tree. I now stand secure in the burned-over place, a sinner unworthy, saved by grace. say, Pastor, I've never accepted the forgiveness that Jesus has provided for me. But according to what you've told us this morning from the Word, you're telling me that Jesus took that in my place, and I can be set free. If you desire that this morning and you've never done that, just raise your hand today. Jesus wants to save you. Very good. Then I have to take that everyone in this room is saved, and I'm thankful for that. So here's how we involve the rest of us. He provided for you, friends, not only victory over sin. He provided for us victory in our lives. There is victory in the name of Jesus. We can have victory over temptation. We can have victory over depression. We can have victory over whatever ails us because it's by his wounds that this morning we are healed. Say, Terry, I'm not living with much victory in my life these days. Just raise your hand. I want to pray for you. Because Jesus' death has provided that. Yes, I see those hands. Thank you. Anyone else? I want you to stand to your feet and Jacob again, verse number two, if you would please. I want you to notice these words because these words will cheer you up. Uh, yeah, I, I, I've served to depress you this morning. But these words will cheer you up because from this it all gets better. Because the punishment that he took upon himself, his death, it's not the final chapter. God raised him from the dead. 
And because he lives, you and I too have the hope of living forever with Jesus. Are you interested in that this morning? Hallelujah. There's a place where sin and shame are powerless. Where my heart has peace with God and forgiveness. Hallelujah. Where all the love I've ever found comes like a flood, comes pouring down. At the cross, at the cross, I surrender my life. I'm in all of you. I'm in all of you. And my sin washed white, I owe all to you. I owe all to you, Jesus. How many of you owe anybody anything? Oh, come on now. I'm not the only one. Wouldn't it be great to have that debt, no matter how, much, how big it is, have somebody pay it in its entirety for you? How many of you would like that? Thought so. That's what Jesus did. He paid a debt that he did not owe. Because I had a price that I could not pay. And he loved us enough to pay it in our place. And that debt of sin is gone forever. Forever. It's washed away. You no longer owe it. You no no longer have to be under the weight of, of, of feeling like you could never get it paid off. It's gone. That's what Jesus, your substitute, did for you. Let's sing the next verse, Jacob. First, yeah. Absolutely. 